0: Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. I do want to share a little bit uh, this morning as we look at this about the first three and a half years of what we would technically call Daniel's 70th week. Uh, The seven year period of time. We normally call it the tribulation. We call it uh, uh, the seven year period of time. Uh, Jacob's trouble, etc. There's the great tribulation, which is the last three and a half years. The first three and a half years is the tribulation. All of it together is the 70th week of Daniel or a seven-year period of time that has yet to take place. I I think a few weeks ago we talked about the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. And I think the rapture begins to take place. I think they have a slide that we can look at and kind of look at the time frame of this. The rapture of the church takes place, which I appreciated, Andy, if you were here on on Friday night uh, during the seminar. I thought he did a very good job of of expressing uh, the biblical uh, reality and and the purpose, all the different aspects of what the rapture is for, when it will take place, etc. For believers, it is a, a tremendous time of encouragement and hope. And so we're thankful. Uh, That we're going to be taken to be with the Lord and and, uh, Paul says to the Thessalonian believers to encourage one another with these words because we will continue, we will be with the Lord forever. What an amazing truth this is. When the rapture begins, which uh, there is no sign that is necessary for it to take place, there's nothing to, in effect, uh, take place prior to the rapture. It's, It's something that the Lord could do literally at any moment. When that takes place, the day of Christ and the day of the Lord, two different agendas will begin simultaneously. We don't know how long after the rapture takes place, to where the beginning of the tribulation takes place. We're not given that specificity in Scripture. We do know that Daniel's 70th week, or the tribulation period, the seven-year period, begins with the signing of a covenant by the Antichrist. And we know that when the rapture takes place, then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed. So what we're going to do this morning is look at the first three-and-a-half-year period of time. In the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. The day of Christ is for believers, begins when the rapture takes place. We enter into a program designed for believers that ultimately uh, is part of this, is, is the, the um, judging, if I could put it that way, of our works and the rewards that take place as a result of either having been faithful to follow the Lord or, or perhaps not so much. Uh, for, the, for the unbelievers, there's a program that begins on this earth, uh, the day of the Lord, which involves a lot of tribulation, God's wrath upon this earth. And so that's something that we're going to look at. Let me give you three things because there's all kinds of different thoughts on this. I, I think when we look at this 70th week of Daniel, the three and a half year period of time, uh, and ultimately the seven year period of time, there are several things that are, that are, in my mind, come very clear. First of all, there's divine revelation. This is yet to happen. It is something we recognize is prophetic in Scripture, but it is revealed. When we talk about revelation, we're talking about the uncovering, the revealing of the reality in fullness of Christ himself. We know that grace and truth were realized, came to be through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ when he entered into time. John chapter 1, verses 1 and following deal with this. But when Jesus Christ came, he gives us a picture of the Father. We are able to see God, in a sense, because we see Christ. We recognize the Father because we see the Son. And the Lord Jesus Christ has made himself visible so that we can recognize the reality and the truth of who God really is, his motives, his character, all the rest. When we talk about the revelation of Christ, we're talking about a two-part moment, the first being the rapture where we're caught up to be with him in the air, and the second when he brings the body of Christ, those believers, back to earth with him, and he comes to judge the earth. And in that moment, we're going to see the full revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see that he is just. We're going to see that he is able to deal with sin, and he's going to put sin in its place. He's going to bring judgment. He is love, yes. But he also is a faithful and righteous and holy judge. And so we have this full uncovering, of the reality of who Christ really is. We also have divine wrath. Folks, I don't think you can look at the seven-year period of time and not understand and recognize that this is God's wrath being poured out upon this earth. In fact, it's very clear, and we're going to look at this. It says it. I don't think you can say, well, the wrath of God really doesn't start until the three-quarter mark of the seven-year period of time. I think the wrath of God is very clearly seen throughout the entire seven-year period of time. And obviously, there's divine intervention. In the midst of all of this wrath and judgment, turmoil, and difficulty... There are people being saved, Israel is being protected, and Israel is being brought back to the Lord as a nation, as a people, so that they will begin to worship their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So first of all, divine revelation. In chapter 4, we have this moment where after uh, speaking to the issues of the church, and again we've looked at that, uh, John finds himself being caught up into the heavens, and there's this heavenly scene. And folks, I'm going to, Lord willing, next year in... uh uh, starting probably in, in the vicinity of uh, March or April, we're going to walk through Revelation and we're going to get into the details. We're going to get into the weeds. Uh, I've never done that before, so I'm excited about that. What I'm doing now is giving you kind of more of a 30,000-foot view of it so that there's kind of some uh, prefacing taking place so that there's a, a, a way, hopefully, of viewing this period of time from a 30,000-foot view so that there's an understanding of it. So I'm not going to get into all the details of, of chapters 4 and 5 But let me give you some thoughts that are are broad to give handles to this revelation uh, of revelation and eschatology, the study of the end times, this prophetic moment that has yet to take place. In chapter four, we're given a throne room scene in heaven. John's been taken up and he finds himself in the throne room of God. And what I want to focus in on is really in chapter five where this book with seven seals is presented and nobody is found worthy to be able to open or break the seals of this book or the scroll until the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes forward. John is so distraught about this that he's, he's weeping and he has to be encouraged. No, it's okay. The Lamb of God is able to open the scrolls. There's the introduction of the Lamb of God, one who is slain before the foundation of the earth. There's this description of the Lamb. But what I really want you to take away as you, hopefully, Lord willing, have been reading through this and have been praying through this, is the worthiness of the Lamb. When you see this throne room presented in Scripture and you you hear the living creatures, and you see the activity of the 24 elders representing the church throwing their crowns before the Lamb. When you recognize the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth being considered worthy because of who He is to break the seals of the scroll. I think one thing you certainly come away with is that this Lamb is no ordinary Lamb, that Jesus Christ is no ordinary created being that he's the Lord, and he's worthy of our worship. Amen? Folks, think about this. We're in a time, in a moment, where I believe we're in the end times. I don't think there's any question about that. Look, if 2,000 years ago, Paul thought the Lord could come back at any moment, I'm waiting for the last tick of that second hand to hit to where the Father tells the Son, go get my people go get my people. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to seeing Christ in the air face to face. Are you? I I can't wait for this body of death to be gotten rid of. I I can't wait to see the salvation that we've been promised, that we have staked everything upon because of God's word, because of what God has said, fulfilled. I'll tell you, there's a truth about the things on this earth growing strangely dim, isn't there? You start to watch the impact of death and disease and the destruction of sin, and you begin to realize, what are we living for? What is it that really drives us every day? What is it that separates us? Why why would we allow anything like that when we know what Christ has done for us and what we're looking forward to and what God has accomplished, will accomplish what we're going to experience. Folks, when we talk about the Lamb of God, one thing you come away from these chapters with is that he is worthy. He is worthy. The four living creatures declare this in Revelation 4 verses 8 through 11. And if you look at what they say, Very specifically, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Holy, holy, holy. Without blemish, without fault, as James says, with no shifting shadow, no hint of a shadow, with nothing in him, in any way, that would despoil who he is. Blameless. Above reproach, not even the hint of the shadow of sin upon him. Pure, light, goodness, absolutely set apart unto himself, holy, holy, holy. Folks, when we begin to read this and we begin to think through this, we begin to understand what this indicates, what it means, how it relates to us in our day. One of the things we ought to come away with is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is worthy of our worship. And the question is, are we worshiping him? And I'm not talking about just Sunday morning. I'm not talking about when David, as well as he does and as beautifully as he leads us into the throne room in the presence of the Lord, as the orchestra and the choir begin to praise God and begin to sing praises that touch our hearts and emotionally stir us. I'm not talking about so much that as what I'm talking about is every day of every moment, of every minute, of every circumstance, of every relationship, of everything that we go through, no matter what it may be, whether we consider it good or we consider it bad, that God is holy, set apart, on his throne, absolutely sovereign and working for our benefit. Do we understand that? And are we living in light of that hope and that truth and that reality? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. The four living creatures give him praise. They declare his holiness. The 24 elders representing the church in verse 11 says, Worthy are you our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you. You hear the worship, the adoration, the awe. Talk about being overwhelmed by a God who sits on his throne, who is above all things, who is holy, who is worthy, of our lives, of our thoughts, of our activities, of everything that we are. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and following. Those who were martyred say this, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased For God, with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Wow. This God who sits in unapproachable light, who no man can see, (laughs) sent his son so that from every tribe and every nation, men would be purchased with his blood. It's amazing. There's question as to who this group is and there's other particular passages that deal with those who have been saved out of the tribulation. I don't think that's the point right now. The point of the matter is, what has the Lord done? And is he worthy of our praise? Is he worthy of our lives? Is he worth serving with every fiber of energy within our bodies? Is he worthy of our worship? The angels praise the Lord. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 and following, they say this, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then they go on in the middle of verse 13 to say, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. What an amazing truth. What an amazing truth. Even the angels praise God for all that He's done, for what He's able to do, for what He's accomplished. And they give Him praise. They worship Him. They give Him worth because He alone is worthy of it. When we talk about a divine revelation, what we're talking about is the revelation of the Lamb and all that He's done and what He alone is able to do and the fact that He is worthy. Of our worship. He is holy. He is worthy to receive all the adoration. He's worthy to receive all the credit because He alone was able to accomplish what He accomplished at the cross. Angels praise Him. Well, there's not only divine revelation, there's divine wrath. God is holy. Sin is something that cannot stand before him. And I think that's an amazing truth. When you think about that, we get very comfortable with our sins, don't we? Is it Jerry Bridges that wrote the book about how we are comfortable with our sins? And others have done the same. And we do. We get very comfortable with our sin. We, we find that uh, we excuse our sin. We're very good at kind of pointing at everybody else and saying what they've done wrong. <laughs> we do that, don't we? I mean, I know you do that. Come on. That's OK. I'm not pointing at you. I'm three got three at me, but we do that. We're quick to, to recognize in others, perhaps something that is very true about ourselves, but maybe when it's about ourselves, we're not so quick to recognize it. And so we need one another. And we need it in love, we need it in grace, we need it in kindness. We need brothers and sisters to come alongside of us and say, hey, friend, I think, I think you've gotten off track here. Let's look at what the Word of God says. Let's look at what, the, what God has to say about this. And, and we need that. God's wrath here is dealing with the unbelief of this world. It's dealing with sin and unbelief. Because God cannot allow sin to continue. He is fair, he is righteous, he is just. He has provided an opportunity for all to be forgiven. He's paid for the sin of the world through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the shedding of his son's blood. That's been paid for. The question is, has it been received or rejected? That's the issue. And the Lord will not allow sin to continue within his creation. In chapter 6, we see God's judgment, God's wrath begin. There's this scroll. There are seven seals. And in chapter 6, we're given the first six. The first is the rider on the white horse, the Antichrist, who comes. There's a, a bow without an arrow indicating in some way, shape, or form that there's a peaceable takeover. Right? So we have the lawless one revealed. We have the Antichrist revealed. Come onto the scene and it is the first seal. The second seal is the red horse indicating war. The third seal is the black horse indicating famine. These are worldwide events. This is not localized. This is across the board. In the fourth seal, we have the ashen horse, which is death. The fifth seal, we have the martyrs from the trib crying out for justice. Many will be saved during this time. And they will pay in effect with their salvation, with their lives, and they cry out for justice. In the sixth seal, we have terror, the earthquake, the sun blackened, the moon looking like blood, the stars falling, the sky split apart, the mountains and the islands moved. We, we begin to see the wrath of God poured out through these first six seals, and, and God begins to work. And, and what we're going to find is not only through the first seven seals, the seventh seal uh, containing the trumpets, and the seventh trumpet containing, in effect, the bowls. And so the seventh seal is so significant that there's a half hour of silence in heaven before it is opened. But in the midst of this, you're going to see an increasing intensity of God's wrath upon this earth. And folks, it's easy to talk about it sitting right here in an air-conditioned, or it's colder outside, so maybe a heated arena, with chairs that I could probably go for about two hours before you really got uncomfortable, (laughs) maybe. It's easy to talk about this in our context where we're really not worried about whether we're going to eat food, we're more worried about what we're going to eat, Right? Amen? Chili's, anybody? Or maybe it's P.F. Chang's or Outback or Monroe's, whatever. Those are my favorites. I mean. (laughs) But folks, this is real. This is horrific. And why? Why? Is it because God is... Up there and some just ticked off God like the Greeks would like to kind of present him as. Manipulating and just enjoying the tyranny of the moment. His authority and power in order to just crash down upon humanity and create discord in the midst of it. And through all the suffering to somehow Reveal that he's an all-powerful God. Is that the idea that we have here? No, the idea is that God cannot stand sin. He hates it. And he will not allow sin to continue. He sent his son to the cross in order to shed his blood that forgiveness may be offered to all. But for those who refuse to believe that the lamb is worthy, there is wrath unspeakable that will be poured out upon this earth as a result. When we talk about God and we talk about the idea that he's our friend, I remember watching years ago down in Florida, and I love Wycliffe Ministries. Uh, They do a tremendous work and translating scripture uh, into languages that have, for the most part, never been known before. People go in, they have to learn the language, then they have to create an alphabet, then they have to figure out how to put it into literal form, uh, writing, they have to put it into writing, and then they have to translate scripture. It's unbelievable. It takes years and years and years for this to happen. I remember watching a Wycliffe video one time, and they were talking about all the different nations and all the different people groups and they were. T- this one lady was sharing about how she had learned from this particular culture something about God, and this particular culture something about God. And when they got to America, when she got to America, she said, uh, "God is my friend, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that." But I'll never forget what Spiruzodiaris told me one time. He said Abraham never called himself a friend of God. God called Abraham his friend. And he said, Eric, don't ever be so presumptuous to say that God is your friend. Let God call you his friend. See, we've got this idea sometimes, I think, that God's our big buddy in the sky. And that when we go through a difficult time, that he's right there with us. And he's going to take care of it all. And we're going to pray. And we're going to ask him to alleviate the pain of whatever the circumstance may be. And folks... There's some elements of truth mixed in with that, but the reality of it is God is God. He's holy. Has he called us friends? Yes, thank God, what grace. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we walk with him, he calls us friends. But folks, in the midst of it, we better be careful about our attitude towards the Lord because he's holy, he's set apart. He is above us. He's not bound by us. And how are we walking with him with respect and awe and reverence to the mightiness, the holiness, the pure righteousness of God himself? How does that impact everything we do in every moment of every day? I don't care whether it's in relationships or circumstances. I don't care whether it's when you're driving. I don't care whether it's how you use money or whether it's where you go to eat or what you eat. I don't care what it may be. How is that truth impacting us in a way that the reverence and the awe of God is being revealed in and through our lives? Because that's the issue. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, the reason I say this is divine wrath is because the Bible says it. (laughs) Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Wow. Is it divine wrath? Yes, it's the wrath of the Lamb. And as a result, it's absolutely from God, and it is wrathful. Why? Because of sin, because of unbelief. In chapter 7, we have an interlude. We have the 144,000. We have a multitude from the tribulation. Chapter 8, the seventh seal is revealed and trumpets one through four begin to take place. It's so significant, as I said, in Revelation 8, 1, it says, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Who broke the seal? The Lamb broke the seal. This is His wrath poured out. Understand that. The trumpets are an increasing of the wrath. The first is hail and fire mixed with blood. One-third of the earth is burned up. Trees are burned up. All the green grass is burned up. The second trumpet, one-third of the sea turns to blood. A third of the sea creatures die. A third of the ships are destroyed. The third trumpet, the star wormwood, turns. A third of the fresh water, bitter, and many die as a result. The trumpet, the fourth trumpet, the sun, moon, and the stars are darkened by a third. The day would not shine for a third, and the night in the same way. In Revelation 8:13, it says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. In chapter 9, the fifth and sixth trumpet are given to us. The fifth is Satan's army of demons from the pit unleashed to torment. Revelation 9, 6 says, in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. Horrific. The sixth trumpet, four angels bound at the river Euphrates released kill a third of mankind with a 200 million army. I believe that's a demonic army. Why? Why? Because there's a refusal to repent. Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21 says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent, they did not change their minds of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Lack of repentance. They know it's the land, they know it's the wrath from God, but there's a refusal to change their mind. They would rather continue to worship, give credit, give worth to things that are inanimate, created, and or demonic rather than to acknowledge that salvation is through Christ alone. In chapter 10, there are seven peals of thunder. John eats the little book, tastes good, but there's a bitterness in his stomach. Chapter 11, we have the two witnesses, and then the seventh trumpet. And out of that come the seven bowls. You know, the interesting thing in the midst of all this is there's divine intervention. And I love this because God's mercy, God's God's judgment is just because he's just. God is holy, but he's also merciful. Merciful. Do you you understand mercy? Do you understand pity and the difference? See, pity is when you see somebody. I was in Romania uh, years ago when I was about 19 years old, and and we were there for three months. And we walked past uh, a gypsy lady who was begging for money. And in the middle of the sun, she had placed her little baby naked on a blanket. This baby was filthy and screaming at the top of its lungs. When I say filthy, folks, I mean every bit of that filth. Filthy. Filthy. And I remember walking with my friends and as we were walking towards her, I, I don't know what it was i other than God himself in me began to create a, a, a pity. And I don't mean pity in the condescending form that we tend to use it as. I mean within oneself there's a deep, deep sorrow and anguish for this situation, this person. And I began to look at that little child, and I love little children, I really do. I I enjoy being with them, they're so much fun. They're fun to tease, they're fun to bless, they're fun to play with, they're just fun. And then you'd give them back to their parents and that's even better. (laughs) I remember reaching down and just sensing I needed to pick that child up because it was screaming and I I picked that child up and just held that child, tried to comfort that child. We knew that this gypsy lady was trying to rip us off and it didn't matter. We gave her whatever Romanian lei we had at the moment and just said, here, take this. See, pity is when you have in you a deep anguish and sorrow for something. And God looks down and he recognizes that we're in this horrible state of filth and we need him. And so he looks down and he's, he's got pity upon us. But the difference between pity And mercy is mercy, is pity in action. Mercy is when God reaches down and rescues. The question is, why does he rescue? And I would suggest very simply, the Bible makes this clear, it's when we believe that we're in need of Jesus because of what he's revealing to us, because of our estate, because we recognize that we need God. And that it's only in Christ that salvation can take place. And then compassion or pity turns into mercy. And I love that song, mercy came running. Isn't that beautiful? Mercy came running because of my need. (laughs) See, the Lord recognizes What's necessary, he knows what we need, and his mercy, even in the midst of all this wrath, even in the midst of all this tribulation, his mercy, his rescuing power is still available. There's the 144,000, there's the prophets, there's the witnesses in the mid-heavens crying out about the gospel of God's grace and the coming kingdom. And there are those who will receive the Lord Jesus Christ and will repent. They will change their minds and recognize they need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Israel will be brought back to the Lord. Satan seeks to destroy Israel, folks. One of the greatest reasons I believe this election has been so important is fundamentally... Life, absolutely. The rule of law, absolutely. Israel, absolutely. We must not lose sight of that. God is not finished with Israel. And Daniel's 70th week fundamentally is not only for for the dealing with sin and unbelief, it is also for Israel to be brought back to himself. There is divine intervention. Satan, during the tribulation, seeks to absolutely destroy Israel. And the picture is of the dragon and a woman giving birth and the dragon trying to eat the child. And God intervenes. Because Israel is special to the Lord. Revelation chapter 15, verses 2 through 4 says, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. In chapter 12, we have the woman and the dragon along with Michael. We have Satan's attempt to destroy Israel and God's intervention or protection on their behalf. Chapter 13, we have the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. The, the number 666 is given. In chapter 14, we have the lamb and the 144,000, we have the angels flying in the mid-heavens, the doom of the worshippers of the beast, along with the reaping of the earth. In chapter 15, we once again have a heavenly seen. And we see in the midst of all this wrath that God's mercy is still available. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that want you to just want you to say, oh God, thank you for who you are. You're great and glorious and alone worthy of worship. Let me just give you a couple concluding thoughts on this, a few. First of all, my prayer is that as we study these end times things, that this is a purifying hope. Do we really believe that the Lord Jesus Christ could come back today? And how do, how do our actions and attitudes reflect that? Huh. I, I say that to myself as much as anybody else. Because I get mad at those drivers on Paseo too, you know what I'm saying? I never drive wrong, ever. <laughs> Nobody ever would get mad at me about that, you know. But secondly, it's a sobering reality. Do, do we really believe that this is literally going to happen? Or do we, do we just kind of imagine it away? well, God's wrath, yes. Or this is just speaking of his hatred towards sin, and so this is just uh, figurative, not literal. See, I believe it's literal. I believe it's absolutely gonna happen. And I believe that that ought to cause all of us to be sober, whoa, okay, how do we handle this? Do you realize the people around us, if the Lord comes back, the rapture takes place and the 70th week of Daniel begins at some point after the rapture. Do you realize that the people around us who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, who have never received him, believed in him for who he truly is, do not have salvation. Do you realize they are destined for wrath? They will go through this. What does that do to our souls? What does that do internally within us when we go past people and we realize that the wrath of God will be poured out. How are we walking with God in the midst? How are we viewing this literally, understanding that this could literally take place at any moment, and what is that doing to change, to recalibrate how we think, how we act, how we walk, et cetera? My question is simply this. when we look at these end times moments, I, I really believe it's a call to recalibrate our lives in light of the days we're in. Folks, if you think an election is going to fix this country, I'm sorry. It will not. It will not. I, I think what Tim said is absolutely correct. Maybe we've spent time in prayer. Maybe we've spent time, amen. Do we stop? Do we stop? See, when we talk about recalibrating our lives, what we're talking about is, are we right in line with what God has for us? Or are we dependent upon Washington, D.C.? Because I'm going to tell you something. If you're dependent upon Washington, D.C., keep on, keep on keeping on, friend. You think Washington, D.C. can fix your life? Wow. Not sure how to help you on that one, to be honest. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can fix this country, can fix this world. The question is, how are we walking in such a way that our lives are being constantly recalibrated to make sure we're absolutely attuned to the Lord? What's our purpose? What's our purpose? Is it to make sure that we just got enough stuff? Is that what it's about? My 401k is doing great. We got, a, we got a president that's promised to cut taxes, and I'm all for that. But is that what we're all about? I, I hope your 401k does great, and I hope you make a lot of money, and I hope you give it. Amen? Make money. Good. Don't get caught up in it because the love of it is the source of all kinds of evil. There's nothing wrong with making it unless you hoard it to yourself. Then it's sin, friend. Give it to the Lord and watch what he does to multiply it. What's our purpose? How's Christ being revealed through our lives? How are we being good stewards of his resources? Not just just financially, but also our time. What God's created us to do, the, the spiritual gifts that he has given to us. Maybe it's one, maybe it's multiple, Who knows in that sense, but what is it that God's calling you to do to serve? What about our personal relationship with the Lord? Do we need to be recalibrated in that? Do we need to have our our thinking adjusted with regard to our walk with God? Is he really the true, absolute center of our life? Is he the first thought on our mind? Is that really true? Or we just come on Sunday or we come maybe Wednesday nights. Maybe we do certain fellowship things. We go to a cave, whatever it may be. But the rest of the the day or the rest of the week, really we kind of have compartmentalized this. Is really the Lord Jesus Christ our lives? That's the issue. And how would the Lord use just a reminder of these prophetic moments to help us recalibrate with regard to our personal relationship with him. What about one another? What about one another? Hmm. You know, folks, I've been here for five years now. Senior pastor, elder. We've had a lot of interesting times. That's a good PC way of putting it, okay? I'm not going to get into all the details for all kinds of reasons. But you know the thing that keeps coming to my mind, and I can't get past this, and I think as elders we've prayed about this, talked about this. Here we are talking about a strategic moment. What is God calling us to do specifically as a church body? What are some of the things, perhaps one goal, whatever it may be, that God has for us as a church body that he's inviting us to join him into actually working on, accomplishing, doing. And the thing that, I love that, I love that. The thing that really keeps pulling me back a little bit is if we, if we design something, and we have all kinds of programs, and, and suddenly we, here we are, we're going, but we don't get right with one another, What was it worth? What was it worth? I'm going to challenge you in something, okay? Can I do that? Through the rest of this year, which is unbelievably almost over, leading into January 1, because January 1 is a Sunday. If you didn't know that, you know it now. (laughs) We're going to have a time of communion on January 1. We're going to have a special called service that morning because we want to start off a new year. And we want to take all this stuff, maybe pain, maybe hurt, maybe somebody has sinned against you, maybe you've sinned against somebody, maybe there's frustration, maybe there's anger, whatever it may be, and I'm going to challenge you over the next few weeks. Number one, go to the Lord and say, Lord, is there sin in my own life that I first and foremost need to confess to you? Number two, If that involved somebody, knowingly. I'm not talking about you had thoughts about a person and now got to dump the trash out on that person. They didn't even know that you were thinking it. Please, please don't do that. I've had people do that to me. It's indescribable. Oh, thanks. I didn't know you hated me so much. I appreciate you. uh, Thanks for being honest. You know, get it right with God. But in all seriousness, If there's something you need to go to somebody because the Lord directs you and the Holy Spirit's, you go to that person and get it right. Do not come into January 1 and that communion time and leave something at the altar that needs to be dealt with. Deal with it. And let's, as a church body, unite in Christ and in his power and in his authority and walk arm in arm together so that through us, the love of Christ, the grace of God, the goodness of God, the joy will be revealed even more than what it's already being revealed to be. Amen? Let's take that and prayerfully go before God and ask the Lord to reveal that and let's make it right with one another. I'm going to tell you this. I'm not going to tell you who, and I'm not going to tell you what. I got some things I got to get right. I'm not the only one that I'm, so, I'm talking to, or you're not the only one that I'm saying this to. I do too. Amen. God's grace is good, isn't it? His mercy and His forgiveness is sufficient. Let's get right with one another. Folks, we're in the end times. Let's redeem the time. Let's not waste it. Let's recalibrate to what God has for us and let's walk in it passionately wholeheartedly so that the Lamb will receive the glory the honor that He is due. Amen? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story